Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Bill Sheriff, yeah, the guy who built uh, up a $1.7 million company and sold it 30 months later for $1.8 billion. He made a bit of a name for himself there and quickly got back into the uranium saddle, but then decided that after Fukushima, it would be a long time for the market recovered. And it turns out he was right. So we look at his business plan today. We look at his assets, what his strategy is, is M&A involved and how quickly he thinks it's all gonna come together. We also touch briefly on his and Viraleach uh, JV with, with uh, Group 11 Technologies. So enjoy the podcast. Hey, Bill, how are you doing, sir? Well, thank you, Matthew. Appreciate you asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, good to have you on the show. First time. We're going to learn today about uh, Encore and maybe Golden Predator. Yeah, I'm sure you'll throw, throw that in there at some point. Um, but uh, why don't we kick off with a one-minute overview for people new to the story, and then we'll kind of pick it up from there. Sure, it'd be my pleasure. Uh, Uncore Energy was formed uh, uh, shortly after Energy Metals Corp was sold to Uranium One. And uh, I, went, when I was one of the co-founders of uh, Energy Metals along with Paul Matissic. And we acquired uh, a significant portion of the assets that had originally been in uh, Energy Metals along with uh, virtually the entire technical staff. And uh, you know, as the name might suggest, we thought it was a good time to do it again. Uh, we'd, we'd mobilize the company and then along came Fukushima. We put uh, roughly 50, 60 million pounds in, into the projects, uh, in, into the company with uh, including a uh, at least partially permitted project in New Mexico. And uh, we saw a resurgence coming again after the 08 decline. Unfortunately, when Fukushima came out, we, we figured it would be a, a good five at, at least and probably 10 years of, of no interest in the sector. So we pretty much uh, battened down the hatches and closed uh, closed up shop, uh, sent out a chairman's letter to our shareholders and, and anyone interested that said game's over for five to 10 years, uh, that we're in survival mode. And uh, not very popular with our contemporaries, but nonetheless, I think it was a good service for our shareholders. And, um, you know, in hindsight, it uh, appears to have been, been the correct move. Uh, during that time, we've uh, obviously been on a very, very low burn rate, trying to conserve our resources and assets. and. At the same time, look for new opportunities that uh, might uh, be of some great significance to the company, albeit with a low entry cost, which uh, certainly um, certainly has proven to be successful for us. Uh, you know, we're well financed. We've we've picked up two or three major business uh, opportunities uh, during that time. Uh, in particular, uh, high-grade retro pipes on the Arizona uh, Plateau, which are the highest-grade deposits in the U.S. And we have the largest uh, land position with a number of uh, new discoveries uh, uh, in that area. Uh, there are some uh, some issues with it in terms of land withdrawal that affect a, a portion of it, but not all of it. And we can get into that a bit later. But nonetheless, it's a great opportunity for us. Uh, similarly, we just uh, announced uh, back uh, about PDAC time our uh, involvement with uh, uh, Group 11 Technologies. And uh, that is a non-invasive alternate processing uh, mineral technology where we plan to use our expertise in in situ leaching uh, towards a variety of metals, including those uranium deposits that have previously been thought to be not uh, ISLable. Um, th thanks for that, Bill. Like, um, we'll get onto some of those topics because uh, I, I do want to talk about you know everything that's going on in the business here. And there's the point I normally say to people: Hey, can we have a chat about your business plan, your strategy? Which again, we will do. But 
I want to talk about you because I read a presentation that you gave a few years ago and it talked about how you started off. And I'm trying to get in the mind of Bill Sheriff here, the type of guy you are, because in that presentation, it talked about making a lot of sacrifices, having long periods of your life without money because you believed something, you believed in something. I mean, those, those early days, you, you kind of, you really were kind of roughing it and spending the last bits of your, your, your money on projects and hoping that they would work out. And obviously they, they clearly did with um, EMC. Uh, but can you, can you just give us a sort of sense of, you know, what, 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 what were your drivers back then? What did, what did you know that other people didn't? Were you just smarter or did you just get lucky? Well, I think you, you have to have a bit of luck to do anything, but then again, I think you make most of your own luck. And uh, perseverance, I guess, would be the best thing. And, and you have to do a lot of analysis as well. And, uh, you know, a bit of it was uh, been a stock trader since I was 16. Uh, not, not to any substantial size, but uh, always had an interest in the market. And without much money, you do a lot more studying than you do uh, trading. So um, picked up a bit of a knack uh, of, of noticing tops and bottoms in markets. And uh, uh, I thought uh, I saw in 2003, at the end of the year, a unmistakable uh, tossing in the towel or capitulation, if you will, in the market. And part of that came from my days of prospecting in Nevada for gold prior to uranium. And uh, just a bit of background on U.S. mining uh, law, you stake a mining claim and you have the mineral rights until uh, September 1st of every year, at which time you have to pony up a bit more money and or work to, to keep your mineral rights. And uh, in December of 03, uh, I saw something I'd never seen before, and that was at the end of the year, that is December 31st, there were three major uranium companies that took the positive action of turning their claims back into the government. Uh, instead of taking a free ride on them and through the next September, it was completely unheard of. I haven't seen it before then. I haven't seen it since then. And evidently it was done to take a, a tax write-off, uh, to, to dot, you know, put a peg in the, uh, in the bleeding, if you will. And uh, yet they would have, if they'd done nothing, they could have enjoyed the benefits of those claims for another eight months for, free of cost. Many of these assets were in their annual information form the year before. So they had what they were calling reserves the year before. And things got so desperate that they actually just threw the towel in and wanted to be rid of it by the end of the calendar year. And uh, to me, that was a, the most compelling scene of capitulation I've seen, like I say, either before, during, or, or since. And uh, it marked an opportunity that, you know, if the assets were good enough to be in, uh, you know, one of the major uh, mining companies, AIFs, the, you know, a, a mere matter of less than 12 months earlier, they were probably worth whatever money I could throw together to hold those assets for a bit of a rebound. And uh, I had no, no idea in my wildest dreams that uranium would go to over $100 a pound in the next 30 months. But I was uh, equally certain that it wasn't going lower and that uh, what we'd seen was a panic capitulation or simply a, a giving up of, the, uh, of some of the most important players in the uranium industry. So I felt quite confident to amass everything I could to, to acquire anything I could. And... Uh, we, during the course of the next few months, uh, moved over into uranium exclusively from gold. At the time, gold was actually rebounding, strangely enough, after quite a long uh, drought. So many people thought, geez, you've waited around for all these years in gold, and now you're switching to uranium, which was absolutely on its bottom. And uh, you must be mad. And uh, I was probably the only one out there staking uranium claims for the first six months, and then it got a bit more competitive. But 
six month head start, uh, we were able to amass quite a quite a collection of you know well over fifty uh, projects that had had resources on them, uh, you know, in earlier days, and uh, you know that and a lot of late nights of looking at aerial photos, looking for drill patterns. It's um, it's remarkable how drill patterns after thirty or forty years in the desert still are quite visible. And uh, when you're scanning aerial photos and you find a bunch of uh, drill patterns that are 25 or 50 foot offset holes, then you can count on it being an or, uh, or at least a resource. And um, uh, you know, so that, that wasn't particularly rocket science, I guess. That was just uh, perseverance. But the initial move in it was, uh, was due to the capitulation in the market. But I, I guess the thing was I liked that I read about, because you're quite unusual, I think, uh, certainly the way that what I've read is you have, you identify data. So you, there was a, again, there's a little story about you know, going to Union Carbide and talking to them about data sets that they had, you know, which they didn't value. Yeah. But you th- said, well, actually, there's got to be something here. I mean, can you give us that story? Because I, I am building up and going somewhere, but I, I just want people to understand the, the sort of, again, the mind that you set that you've got. That was, uh, I've always been a data fan when I first started working for Selection Trust, a uh, UK firm. Um, which uh, was back in the 80s. Uh, I was in charge of uh, going through uh, research. That is, I was basically leg shackled to a filing cabinet and uh, told to dig through geologic files in search of overlooked uh, bits uh, pertaining to gold in the Southwest US. We identified two or three deposits that have since seen production by filing, by digging through filing cabinets. And so I became an early advocate of the fact that there's probably a good number of uh, mines to be discovered and, and already discovered uh, work. And uh, so we've done a lot of uh, what we call data mining at the time, although it wasn't anything having to do with high tech computers. It was physically manually going through tons of literally tons of paper data. And uh, I still do that, uh, as a matter of fact. And anyway, I set out to acquire uh, the largest independent database in in the mining world, at least in the Western world. And, uh, you know, aside from Newmont Barrick and probably RTZ was, was successful at doing so. Union Carbide, uh, I picked that up in 85, 86, somewhere in that time frame, And uh, I went up looking for a single file and the gentleman running uh, the operation at the time, they were down to a skeleton crew pretty much doing reclamation in, in Eurovan. Uh, took me into a, oh, a large warehouse with, uh, oh, I think 800 or 900 filing cabinets and, and countless boxes and said, well, have, have had it and see if you can find the file you're looking for. Well, after about an hour and a half, I realized the chances of me ever finding it were, were slim to none and uh, started putting together another plan to perhaps buy uh, maybe a hundred of the select filing cabinets. Because when I was going through the filing cabinets, I noticed complete resource studies on projects that had yet to be mined. And there was a complete data package, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars having been spent on it, identifying a resource. Granted, the price was down and no one was interested then, but it wasn't going to stay that way always. As um, we all know, commodities are quite cyclical. So um, I went in and uh, made a pitch to him and the vice president uh, to, to buy the, I don't know, 50 or 100 filing cabinets for some modest sum, I think 10 grand, which I had probably 50 cents of in my pocket at the time, but I was going to worry about that later. And um, instead they said, well, we won't do that. And as, as I was walking out the, the room, they said, but we will sell you the entire collection for that, provided that you clean it out of that building in the next four weeks because their lease was up. And uh, so I said, sure, I'd be glad to. Had absolutely no idea how I was going to accomplish that task. Uh, but the first thing was to bring in a dumpster. We filled a 15-yard dumpster every day for four weeks. 
um, just getting to the data that we wanted, ended up moving um, 58 tons of paper material to a warehouse in Durango, Colorado. And uh, uh, while we were packing it up, we were sort of going through it. So we made a couple of notes and actually picked up a couple of very good projects uh, along the way at the time. And uh, that was about the time that we had the boom that turned to a blip about 86. The uranium market had a, a good month or two. And that was really about it. And everyone thought, ah, this is it. And there it goes. And, and not much happened. So I was able to actually lease out a couple of the properties and cover my cost on the database and make a few bucks. And uh, in any event, after a lot of hard work and calling in every favor I had from the few friends that were still speaking to me from previous attempts to do that, uh, we were able to complete the task and, and get all the data. And uh, that was just the beginning of the data uh, acquisition. We went on to acquire WR Grace, Atlas Precious Metals, uh, U.S. smelting and refining, uh, qu quite a number of collections. And where's, but, the uh, where's all that data now? I mean, who, who owns it? Good portion of it. Well, the, the precious metal part in the United States, uh, I sold to uh, Ely Royalties, where I'm a board member. I sold the, most of my gold projects to them as well. And uh, the uranium data still resides with Encore. And that's the worldwide uranium database. Uh, they have a uh, essentially cost-free license to use it. It remains my data, but, but they can use it. Uh, and... Uh, and some of the other worldwide data and other commodities is, is still uh, held here as well okay. by myself. Fantastic. Okay, so you, you, you like data and you don't mind um, rooting around for it. So I, I just think that's, it's insightful into the, the minds of the, the individuals when we're, when we're talking to them. So um, can we just talk a little, I know we're going to talk about Encore, but can we just talk a little bit about that, the, 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 the rise of... Um, EMC and obviously, you know, the eventual sale for $1.8 billion, because at the time that was one of the smartest deals going, right? So, but you learned a few things along the way, I imagine, about the do's and the don'ts. I guess the most important do is uh, if you have conviction in something, uh, being first mover is, is far more important than anything else. Um, you know, we were the first to go out and collect the projects. We were the first to uh, put, put it together into a, one, among the first to put it together in a public company and, and among the first to the trough to refinance at every opportunity during that 30 month period. And also uh, became a huge believer in merger and acquisition. One of my other unpopular theses in the junior market sector is there's way too dug on many little companies. And uh, the chances of success as little companies are, are, are not particularly good. Um, I, I probably have harsher views than that, but we'll leave it at that. Uh, I think the only way to really make it is through M&A and putting, you know, tying your rafts together to get a bigger company to not only survive uh, the bad times, but to, to prosper more in the good times. And, uh, you know, that's true whether you're a, a one asset producer in the gold market or whether you're a, a collector of resources in the uranium sector or what. And it, it all comes down to cash flow. And I think that's been really illustrated over the course of the last pick a time frame since 08, be it five years, 10 years, two years. And you look at the uh, just the gold sector, and I know it's not a gold interview, but this, this illustrates a point, I think, quite well. If you uh, look at the Australian Stock Exchange uh, Index of Gold Producers, it's, it's had a fairly significant uptrend over the last five, 10, two years, whichever time period you take. That same time period has shown the TSXV, which is probably the world's biggest collection of small junior gold miners make continual new lows. And uh, if you look at the price of gold, it's made a nice decent move in between there, notwithstanding the, the post-crisis or post-COVID situation, but prior to that. 
And so I, I, I started asking a lot of people in the market, uh, both in Australia and the US and Canada, what, what's the difference? And everyone in Canada said, well, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's due to the pop stocks coming in and taking uh, too much, or it's due to the uh, blockchain, or it's due to this, or it's due to that. Quite frankly, we live in a global market. I can get on interactive brokers or any number of other platforms and trade 27 markets at the touch of a button. So I don't buy that. That's um, a currency exchange issue. Yeah, there might be five points difference between the uh, Aussie dollar and, and the loonie. So that's not really it either. And what, what I really started believing and have become a, an advocate of is that the Australian model involves revenue. And you know, the, the Australians, they want to go out and produce if it's 5,000 ounces. It's better than no ounces. And so they make an effort to go out and, and generate revenue. And I think if you look over the course of the last few years here again, post virus notwithstanding, most of your successful gold companies have had revenue. And the reason the royalty model works and, and has worked so well, even for not being producers is because they have a piece of that production through royalties. And I think the bottom line is, is that the investors ensure during this time of uncertainty, they, they all come running back. But, you know, here again, I'm more interested in the sustainable business model than I am a, a temporary boom. I welcome, you know, the short term investors, don't get me wrong, but you, it's hard to build a business on them. It's very unpredictable. And I much prefer a, a solid business model and any solid business model, I think, has to have revenue. Well, absolutely. What I'm trying to get, what I'm trying to understand is what are the things that you learned on the on the way up, you know, with that uranium one deal, with AMC. What are the things you learned on the way up? You've given us some clues today in terms of you know persistence and trusting instincts and yep. uh, you know people and data and all of those things. But what are the other components to this? Because you know it seems to me, you know, you're not getting going to get first mover advantage this time around. So, what are the things that you can use? No, but I think. I think you can get first mover advantage in a number of places. It doesn't have to necessarily be last time. It might have been in collecting the resources. This time, everyone has a handful of resources. So, you know, perhaps this time it's in uh, in some other aspect. Uh, there's a lot of first first mover uh, things, keeping your market cap down to where you can raise money without blowing it out, uh, taking advantage of booms to, to raise money. Uh, you know, I guess it, all these things revolve around the word timing and uh, uh, toward, towards revenue. And so I, I think we can still attain first mover in certain areas. And that here again, that uh, segues into the group 11, where we've clearly got first mover initiative. We'll, we'll come on to that. I guess what I want to understand is like, there, there needs to be a degree of, when you're small and nimble and agile, you've, there's a good degree of flexibility there to the way you do business. But are you reliant on your brand, your brand, as in someone, you know, there weren't too many people who kind of did what you did. Do you think you could go into the market when you choose to? Because I think you've already alluded to us that perhaps that you didn't believe the timing was going to be right for five to ten years. Do you believe you can walk back into funds, banks, and the rest and say, "Give me some money"? You've, you talked about M and A there. It's, it's, that might be a better course of action for you. I mean, is that the plan? Maybe then now's the time to sort of start talking about the business plan because you've done nothing for five, ten years, right? Deliberately. You've done nothing. You've chosen not to. Right. You've only we, just redone we, your website. So is, is, is now the time? I don't even know that we've done that too often. <laughs> um, you know, we've, we've, made a, we've made a couple of uh, acquisitions, like I say, the Brecher Pipes, but essentially it's been pretty quiet. Mm. And uh, that's by design. It's not that, uh, you know, I, I don't think the next push in uranium is going to be uh, to who has the uh, most pounds in the ground which last time was definitely a pounds in the ground game. Although we benefited immensely from 
our having picked up a production asset in Texas and, and recommissioning that uh, because it gives you the means to production. And I don't think we have a dissimilar view this time. Uh, there's uh, you know, only a select number of uh, production assets in, in the US. The permitting window to get a new production license is very long. Even with the Trump administration, it's shorter than it was, but it's still quite arduous in the, in the uranium sector. Um, needless to say, we, we've, I think, know of all the possibilities that are on the board. And you know, without getting into specifics, I think you know, clearly we're looking at uh, a similar strategy in terms of finding a production-oriented base. Um, now, then whether we do that through acquisition or through M&A, whether we end up being a bigger or a smaller part of that, um, you know, time will tell. Uh, but uh, clearly, I think that's uh, a, a real plus. And, and the only way you're going to really distinguish yourself from the uh, other other explorers, if you will. And uh, I, I don't think there needs to be a lot of exploration. There's so much uranium already discovered. You've got to figure out a way to get it into production. And uh, that, that's our that's our key motivation here. So uh, here again, M&A, we did five M&As in 30 months at EMC. And uh, I think that that is not... Uh, uh, not a bad choice for this next time around. And it's silly to talk about five when you haven't done one, uh, but uh, we're certainly on the lookout for that. And uh, uh, you know, the, these things come in different ways. You don't have to take over a complete company. You can take over a, you know, a package of assets. In fact, we did with Metamin for the Brecha pipes again, but uh, it was relatively small and it uh, brought us some good discoveries, but didn't bring us the production license. So you know, clearly that's what we're gonna be looking for. Okay, but back to the original question, which was, do you think anyone's listening to you if you say, right, I want to get some money? Yes. They are? Yes, okay. absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, ironically, a certain amount of that credibility has been brought about by our skepticism of the market over the past decade. Um, I think some of the bigger, more savvy investors are quite happy that we saved them money during a time when, when others were perhaps a bit overly optimistic um, and chased a number of little blips that turned into nothing. Um, you know, clearly there's, uh, there's other companies that have production assets, have experienced people, are good companies. Uh, I actually own several of them in, in my own personal portfolio. Uh, but uh, I think that credibility of having done it and the way we're doing it uh, will serve us quite well when it uh, comes time to look for financial backing in terms of, uh, of a major acquisition. Now you've already... Because we stay in touch with those potential bankers. Right. Okay. So the, the, you, you, feel com you feel confident at the time you want to go to market, you're going to be able to raise capital. I guess the trouble is doing it at, uh, what have you got, 30 million bucks is not ideal. So how do you plan to, because again, you haven't been marketing at a choice. You haven't been marketing. How do you drive that so that your cost of money is not so expensive? Well, um, without, if I were to completely answer your question, I might give away a bit too much information. So it's fine. Uh, let's it's fine. let's I don't just mind. leave it. Let's just leave it. At, let, let's leave it at. We've had offers for uh, uh, dilutive financing all the way along, and we've had offers of more cash than we found opportunities to deploy sensibly, and uh, we don't expect that to change any. At the same time, uh, there are other methods to uh, achieve things other than through stock issuance. And uh, we certainly have, have been kicking the tires, haven't been able to close any of them yet, but uh, certainly have a few of those in mind. Uh, you know, whether we'll be successful or not, I can't tell you. Uh, I think we have the right tools and the right backers to become successful. And it's a matter of identifying the right opportunity. Okay, well, let's come back on to um, 
some of the projects in a second. So I do want to talk about a couple of those. Um, you talked about having a slightly contrarian view to other people in the marketplace with regards to how long you thought this recovery would take. And as it turns out, you're right. There's always someone who's got to be right. In this case, it's you. You got you called it right. Um, little recovery recently. You know, went from 23 bucks to 34 bucks, and it seems to be sort of settling around around in or around that mark at the moment. Do you think that we have just seen another blip, I think, to use your phrase, or do you think, along with everyone else now, that the macro story is there to drive this thing, you know, further, you know, in terms of, you know, price discovery, price recovery? I think we're in the first phase of a a transition. I think we've seen the bottom, uh, which is an important first step to answering your question. I I don't... uh, uh, I don't feel any qualms about saying we've seen the bottom. Uh, I think it's higher from here. I think it's probably going to take longer than most people currently think. Uh, But I do think that uh, we're in the right place at the right time. I think when you get out around 2022, 2023, maybe 2024, the the global uh, metrics on it are quite favorable. Um, There's been a bit of discussion about with the uh, COVID situation and the, you know, clear reduction in electrical demand that that's going to hurt the, uh, uh, hurt the nuclear industry, uh, not so much in the Western world. It may may reduce some of the demand in, in uh, China, uh, conceivably some in Russia, but uh, you know it's it's a whole lot easier to turn off gas and, and uh, coal-fired and those sort of plants than it is a nuclear reactor. So I don't think we're going to see much of an impact over here. Um, we do think that a lot of the uh, onishes, if you will, uh, developments in terms of small mobile reactors, uh, in terms of uh, Westinghouse's Encore brand, which is obviously the same name as ours, but no affiliation, uh, where they're uh, coming up with a superior meltdown proof fuel rod that's gone into commercial testing this year for the first time. Uh, we think those are going to spur demand uh, and ex- reacceptance of nuclear power. Um, there's certainly crosswinds in the market. Um, I think the uh, while we're you know being a domestic uh, uranium company, we we support the movement of of the domestic uh, uranium companies in terms of getting some relief from the U.S. government. We we I guess how would we say that we would welcome it, but we don't necessarily anticipate a lot of it. Um, we think that things that don't cost money might get done quicker. Uh, obviously, from our time on, in Washington and discussing it. Budgets are an issue, especially when you have to get bipartisan support. So a lot of the movements to uh, shore up the domestic uranium industry are you know, going to run into tough sledding when it comes to getting bipartisan support, we think. Um, yet some of the uh, initiatives of the administration will probably go through that don't require necessarily cash injections, and we think we'll uh, uh, you know, benefit from that. But here again, we aren't building our, our future or the foundation of the company dependent upon the government supporting a, of an industry. We. We think there's a true shift in the supply demand metrics. Um, I think we've got a mini perfect storm. We had a perfect storm in 04, uh, 05 when this happened with uh, MacArthur flooding and then uh, you know monsoons uh, flooding Ranger, the AIDS epidemic at uh, Rossing. Uh, you know a whole bunch of uh, unrelated events combining to curtail supply, and we've got a similar situation now. The the only question is the duration of it because part of that's COVID. Uh, reaction so i guess it, if you uh, you know if you if you believe the nightly news and everything's going to be a v-shaped recovery and life will be just like it was two months ago in another month 
Um, couple of things. I have a bridge for sale if you're interested, but the, but the other one is, is that that uh, will probably return the, uh, uh, you know, electric back to where it was. We, we think it's going to be a little slower process and we think it's going to function uh, to, to limit supply a lot more than it's going to curtail demand. It's interesting talking to like a John Borshoff or someone like yourself who don't have the same business model, the same drivers as everyone else. You know, because everyone talks their own playbook, right? You, it's just human nature, and oh, yeah. it's the job of the CEO to do to do so. So there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a, it's just a question of it. You you've got to take it with a pinch of salt, or at least understand the, the drivers of the conversation. Your conversation um, is different. Obviously, she's saying we, we made a call very early on. We told our shareholders they accepted it, and we were going to sit back and wait for the right time. Whereas you had. Lots of CEOs, lots of funds talking up the story, the demand story from three, four years ago and every year since. Um, but that desire, that, um, that story was, was, was unable to shift sentiment enough because the sentiment was based on the buying behavior of the utilities. So, I mean, was that something when you, during this period you're sitting back and saying, well, I, I told you so, or were you, it was a little bit of you going, well, actually it'd be quite nice if it did turn now. No, I think what it is realistically is it's based on the only experience that I personally have. And that was seeing the blip in 85, 86 that didn't go anywhere. And the uh, really quite unique set of circumstances that did result in a perfect storm in 04 to 07. You know, we had one spot producer that was dictating the spot price by dribbling out uh, a few pounds here and there which you know, drove the spot price to, to obscene levels. Uh, so much money coming in at the top of that cycle, you know, a super cycle, if you will. Uh, some have called it that in 07. Um, you know, the building cranes all over the world. I mean, the economy was on fire, much like it was oh, about six months ago. But, uh, you know, the, the, so I'm very much biased by what I've seen and lived through. And so that's why I think, you know, that was not a, a demand-driven market. That was a supply curtailment market. And I think that, uh, as I say, this one resembles that a whole lot more than anything I've seen since and has the potential to have a, a more lasting duration, I think. Um, you know, we'll see where this uh, virus restriction goes. Uh, you know, some of the things that I think people aren't also queuing in on, and they're all minor, but you take a lot of these minor points and they start adding up to something significant. And, you know, that is when you put your uh, well fields on standby and quit pumping, you'll never achieve the same uh, uranium production when you turn it back on. Uh, basically, an ISL is, is a giant chemical reactor. And once you stop the circulating fluids, funny things start precipitating out and clogging your system. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I won't say it's impossible because uh, people do the impossible all the time and we get new innovations. But to date, you will not get any, you will not get your full recovery out when you restart your well field. And, uh, you know, that's one of the actions that the Cazetta Prom's taken that's, I think, is significant and, and potentially lasting curtailment you you couple that with like i say now over half of the world's largest gold or uranium mines sorry have curtailed production for one reason or another and uh, they don't seem to be too quick to jump back in and there's certainly mathematical models that have been put forward to where even uh, you know the biggest in the business cameco will make a lot more money if they lose a few bucks on contracts above 40 bucks a pound uh, due to the low number of contracts in order to to put in longer term contracts in, in much bigger supply at 50 and 60. 
And certainly they've got the financial wherewithal to withstand such a short-term uh, loss situation. So I, I think most of the players are, are not in the, similar to oil, and nobody really wants $20 oil, except maybe the consumers. Um, you know, and, and I, I think it, here again somewhere, I don't think oil's going back to 100 bucks. I don't think uranium's going back to 100 bucks anytime soon. But I think we're likely to have a more sustainable market uh, due to the increased demand going out to 23, 24 in that area, coupled with the supply curtailment that we have now. And if that supply curtailment isn't released in the next six months to a year, it may very well continue on until the point where the demand picks up big, which time you might have have some sort of significant, you know, more, more uh, straight up move. In the meantime, I think we're just going to see a general uptrend that I think is probably quite healthy for the industry. Uh, you know, the uranium industry is not known for a lot of uh, long-term moves. It's, uh, it's known for spikes and and hurry up and wait. Yeah, okay. So let me, I just want to make sure I totally understand this. So obviously you're, you're referring to sort of UXC or, or trade tech numbers about, you know, 22, 23 or possibly even 24, where those that kind of cross over to the supply and demand numbers. But are, are you suggesting that we could see the types of 100 buck uh, or plus price here? Or do you think this slow, steady recovery will be that to a point up to 100 bucks? Do you think we've learned anything from the last last cycle? Is what I'm asking. Um, a lot of people have learned a lot of things. I'm not sure any of them are the right thing for the future. You know, hindsight's almost always 2020. So, uh, I, but I personally, and this is just my view. We have others on the board that have a very different view. We, we have a lot of pretty smart guys with a lot of good opinions, and I'm probably least of them in terms of the knowledge of the nuclear industry, but uh, or at least the, the rookie in the group. But uh, I, I don't think you're going to see the $100 a pound unless the supply curtailment lasts long enough to overlap with the demand increase. And if it does, then all bets are off. It could go pick a number. Um, could certainly reach its old high again. I think far more likely is we have a really good chance to, in a straight but slow line, get up to the $50, $60 range which, uh, and, and have that sustainable uh, over the next uh, five, six years, something like that. I don't know, maybe, maybe longer. Okay. Uh, depends on uh, where we go with the nuclear industry. Well, that's I guess that that kind of number would suit a lot of people. Um, but the the other aspect of the last cycle that that we saw, which you know you 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 came in at the the, the front end of, was the fact that a, a huge number of companies, you know, four fifty five hundred companies, set up to be uranium miners. Well, I don't know about miners. They set up to be uranium companies. I, don't, I think a lot of them knew they'd yeah. never get into production. Um, but that meant that a lot, and this is why we do this show, it means that a lot of people lost money. Some people made some money, and a lot of people lost yeah. a, a lot of money. You know, that's the nature of these, these cycles. You know, they, 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 they bought at the heights thinking it would keep going, and it didn't. And I'm just trying to, you know, get your sort of sense of, do you think we'll kind of see that kind of crazy behavior um, from the market? I think you'll see a small version of it in the $50 to $60 parameter, a slow gaining of momentum, maybe up to 100 companies. I don't know. Pick a number. Um, I, I don't see the investment frenzy as being there like it was last time around. However, here again, if the curtailment goes long enough to overlap with the demand increase, then at that point, you may get All bets a are bit off. of craziness into the market. Right. I still think it'll be a bit less than last time because a lot of those folks figured out they didn't even know how to spell uranium, much less be in the business. Um, you know, it, it, 
I've always told people that, you know, it's, it's not myself by any means, but it's our, our team. If you look at a company, anyone can go out and get pounds of uranium. Anyone can go out and get a deposit. Um, if your objective is to sell it to a big company, you, you've only got a handful of uh, somewhat hesitant purchasers now. And obviously that will grow as the market dynamics change, but still there's not a lot of big companies. There's very few and it's concentrated. So if you don't have that as your plan and your odds are, I don't know, a, a bit long on that, I guess. Right now there's three or four really quality assets looking for a home and there hasn't been a whole lot of bidding on them. Um, but I think the, the, other, the other route is it, we're going to be a producer. So if you're going to be a producer, you have to look at that company and ask, ask the company, how are you going to get there? Do you have the in-house technical ability to, to be in production? Have any of your people ever been in production? Do they know how to permit? Do they know how to do reclamation? Do they understand the fuel cycle? Do they understand that just because uh, nuclear demand goes up, uranium doesn't necessarily go up, that there are things that uh, can offset that? You know, they're substitutes. And uh, you know, one of the big things we watched during the decline was the SWOO. If the SWOO price isn't moving, it doesn't matter if yellow cake moves. It's, it's a short-term blip. You've got to have things moving in concert. And um, I think if you ask the management of most companies that pretty quick, you'll end up with a, you know, maybe a dozen or, or 20 companies that actually have the real potential to make production. Obviously, the ones that are in production now are already there. But the, the next tier, uh, do they have the technical ability and the technical know-how to take their projects and get them into production and through regulatory burden, assuming cash were no issue? I mean, it's quite expensive to permit these things, but let's just for step one, assume that cash is no issue. The right kind of market, it probably won't be. Uh, it still limits your field considerably. And uh, I, I would, uh, th those are the ones I would look for. Yeah. yeah, I hear you. We've been pretty much saying the same thing. Um, have you got the energy to go and do what you did before? Oh, yeah, this is fun. I, I don't golf well, so I don't plan to retire. Okay. And do you think you could replicate what you did before? All things being equal. Honestly, I think it will be, I don't expect that sort of a frenzied market. So I think it would be really tough to duplicate the one and a half billion dollar wrap up. But, you know, if you ask me, do we think we can do a third of that? Yep, absolutely. Um, do we think we can do a little more than a third to a half? Yep, yep. So, you know, if, what if we're only a third as successful as last time? That's 500 million, depending on what time you put the peg in it, but 500 million from you know, our current market cap, I think most people would be pretty happy with that. Yeah, okay. Should we talk about some of your projects? Because you've got quite a few. You've got a lot of projects. Are all of them economic are all of them things that you're going to move or you're going to flip them how, how, how do you break down your isr projects from your conventional well we've kind of got a three a three-stage strategy and it's very much dependent upon what the market does and how it does it and this gets into the velocity of the price change uh, we've got some relatively small dry uh, conventional mines in utah that are all within a, a fairly uh, close shipping range of uh, energy fuels white mesa mill while they're one of our shareholders, we don't have a special agreement with them. Uh, they've been pretty much, in terms of toll milling, they've been pretty clear that first one to the gate with the product that'll sign the agreement will process their ore. And here again, this gets back to the first mover uh, discussion. I think it's important no matter what business you're in. And um, so, you know, assuming we were to see something that we don't expect, and that is a very rapid price rise, um, we could get those uh, mines into production very quickly, certainly under a year. The permitting on a dry mine in Utah is very straightforward. 
And uh, uh, while it wouldn't be a lot of money, it would be cash flow. And I think that would uh, separate us from the crowd. Um, so that, that's, I, I suppose, the smallest uh, leg of the stool, if you will. The, the more important ones are the high-grade breadship pipes in Arizona and uh, our big, big deposits in New Mexico. And uh, the ones in New Mexico are ISLable. Uh, we believe all of them are. Certainly the biggest uh, Crown Point and Hoster Butte are. Uh, Crown Point and Hoster Butte are, are under a partial license. And by a partial license, I mean they're held under uh, an NRC license uh, that Laramide currently holds. Uh, one company holds a license on two different companies' properties. And so uh, you know, we have a strange relationship in that regard there, but a, a positive one with them. And uh, you know, at some point, uh, that uh, will pay off for, for both parties. And the breccia pipes are more of an interesting thing. I, you know, I say we don't need uh, new uranium discoveries in general in the, in the world, but high grade is always something nice and you can never have enough high grade. And the deposits on the uh, Arizona Strip are, are significantly higher, four or five times as high as, as most of those in the U.S. And uh, while they don't uh, approximate those in the Athabasca Basin, neither does the CapEx nor development costs. These are very quick, uh, inexpensive, easy to permit, easy to reclaim projects. Uh, we've got about 12 of those in Arizona that are not encumbered uh, by the land ban uh, that uh, was put in during the Obama administration. Um, there's been quite a little talk about uh, relaxing of that uh, uh, land withdrawal in the vicinity of the Grand Canyon. Uh, if it happens, we stand to benefit significantly. If it doesn't happen, we've still got 12 awfully good projects there. Um, those are quick to uh, uh, delineate. They're quick to drill out. They're quick to get into production, modest capex, et cetera. Here again, you need a mill. So they're all within trucking distance of that White Mesa mill. Uh, we've also looked into the possibility of a new small mill in southern Utah to service those. And um, I guess the best way to sum that up now is while financially it's feasible, timeline-wise it's probably feasible, politically within the communities there's not broad support for it yet. And uh, you know, the, with who knows how a, a bad economy for a year or two here might change uh, local perception of such an opportunity. I, I don't know, but we, we keep it on our radar screen. Um, right now, the most favored approach would be here again, first to market and, and get, to, get to the mill. But the real company maker that we've got is in New Mexico. Uh, New Mexico has long been known in the U.S. as the biggest, uh, most uh, high-grade deposits, uh, you know, in terms of most of the production in the U.S. has come out of New Mexico historically. And unfortunately, the legacy of that is that they uh, uh, did not treat the uh, native population, primarily the Navajo, very well. And there's a, a long uh, history within most of the native families, or within the Navajo families, of uh, something that uh, happened that wasn't good somewhere within their family relating to uranium mining. And in fact, you know, just as an illustration, in, in the 50s, the U.S. government handed out cigarettes to underground miners and then figured out that there was a 100% chance of uh, death within a four-year period if you smoked underground. So, you know, not, not a great way of doing business. And then there's, you know, the old-fashioned mining way of doing business where they come in and say, we have the rights to mine this, get out of our way, we're going to mine it. And uh, that's not very neighborly either. Um, one of the experiences I had being on Uranium One's board was dealing with the uh, black empowerment uh, issue in South Africa. And we came up with a novel approach of rather than giving a, a large chunk of the operation away, uh, uh, 
rather providing it through equity, through through uh, people actually working to to build equity. And I think we all are probably of the opinion, certainly I am, uh, that uh, if you work for something, you appreciate it a heck of a lot more than if it's just handed over to you. And uh, you know that uh, segue into uh, my wife's uh, position with Golden Predator. She's had an awful lot to do with the Aboriginal issues up in Canada, and uh, some of the same uh, actually related uh, First Nations in Canada are related to the Navajo. It doesn't assure success, but it's certainly uh, our, our approach with the Aboriginal peoples has been radically different than most companies, I think, and. Um, Certainly, there's no such thing as smooth sailing on any permitting of any mining project anymore, I don't think. But I think we've got a, an inside track again in terms of how we view the, the proposition. And bottom line, if it doesn't make sense for them for us to be there, then we really don't need to be there. Okay. And if the project isn't big enough and, and healthy enough to take on that uh, extra small burden, then we shouldn't be doing it. And, right. uh, it's going to take a lot longer in New Mexico, but the reward is substantial. Okay, so what I'm hearing is whatever gets you into production and cash flowing first is going to be your focus, market conditions allowing. Yeah, you have some big targets that you're potentially looking at. These breakers are potentially, well, not all of them. You say you've got 12. Are there a couple that stand out or are they all roughly a similar size and similar geology? There's four or five, and, and these are things that were developed by Quaterra. Uh, back during the last boom, uh, they they uh, had quite a bit of experience from here again, Union Carbide and Energy Fuels days on the uh, Arizona Strip back in the old days. And they developed a new uh, geophysical technique to identify uh, breccia pipes. And so far, it's been hitting at about 85, 90%. And of those, about a third are mineralized. Um, so yeah, there are four or five of those 12 that stand out in terms of they've got a few more drill holes in them. They've uh, got more substantive discoveries. Um, but clearly we think all 12 have a, have a good shot at it, but the, yeah, there's three or four that uh, stand out uh, on that, on that list for sure. And, um, you know, it's, it's conceivable that, uh, you know, we certainly would have to drill some more there before anything happened. And it's conceivable, uh, you know, you could see something happening there over the course of the next few years, depending on how the market develops. Uh, of course the Utah stuff's quicker and easier. The New Mexico projects, which are really the cornerstone of the company uh, in terms of uranium assets right now, uh, are probably a four or five year proposition. Uh, there's a lot of groundwork that needs to be done. There's uh, a lot of education that needs to be done on both parties, both us learning from, uh, from the Aboriginals as well as them uh, learning about what it is and how we plan to do what we do and why it's in their best interest to do so. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure quite a lot of negotiation. So it's not a, a, an easy overnight step, but as I say, the reward's uh, quite substantial. Absolutely. Can't, can't be done without it. Can't be done without it. But what I want to, because you, you have chosen to just hunker down for the last few years because you, you called the, the market right. Um, but now you're going to have to start thinking about the, the path forward. You know, what are you going to tackle first? Where do you deploy cap? Well, one, you're telling me it's, you, you, you're not overly concerned about raising capital, but you want to do it in the less, least dilutory way possible, obviously. And then it's a question of how much you get, when, and where you deploy it. I'm interested in what do you know today? You're a data guy. You told me right from the start you're a data guy. So what do you know today that's going to guide you as to where you target your cash, where you deploy your cash first, given your goal of I want production soonest? 
Yeah, I, good, good question. And I'm, I'm probably not going to satisfy your question with the answer, but I'm going to give you a, a, a multi-part answer because it's uh, honestly how we're operating and how we view this. Um, we are, we have been looking, spending a good deal of time looking at uh, opportunities to acquire individual assets and or packages of assets over the last few years, even when we were not very favorable on the market. Our criteria has changed a lot due to our much more favorable view now. In fact, I'd say we're positive at this point. Um, and so we've gone back to look at a couple of the things we'd looked at before that we were sort of interested in, but they didn't quite meet the hurdle. Um, I would like to think that we'll reach fruition on one or two of those things uh, within the next, well, by the end of the year, shall we say. Um, uh, I think anything that we're looking at could be a significant uh, transformative event for us. Um, uh, you know, obviously some are more more significant than others, but I, I think, uh, you know, any, any of the ones that we're really serious about that we're looking at right now and, and digging into great dip could, could be very significant for us. Um, no, no assurance of success in terms of acquiring it, but we think we could or we wouldn't be kicking the tires. Um, the, the other thing is we've, we've already begun uh, an outreach program with the Navajo. Uh, unfortunately, they're being hit uh, particularly hard with this COVID situation, uh, among the worst in the world. And, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to say, go wash your hands, but it's very difficult when most of your citizens don't have running water. And I don't think most of our viewers here or most people in the world actually appreciate how uh, profound the poverty is there and, and how profound the health crisis is there now. And so, you know, we've, we've done what we can. We don't have a whole lot of money, but we've uh, taken an initiative and, and sent medical supplies, PPE supplies, that sort of thing to uh, a number of the uh, local chapters in Arizona and New Mexico as well. Um, you know, obviously we'll get some goodwill out of that, but the main thing is, is it's something that quite frankly, everybody should be doing, uh, especially anyone that's working there. I mean, these are, these are people that are going to be our, our partners, our employees, et cetera, and they're in a great, great period of need now. So we're uh, you know, trying to step up as best we can to do that and encourage others to do so as well. But beyond that, uh, you know, we, once this is settled down, uh, we, have plans outlined uh, to begin a series of, of interactive dialogue with the various chapters and really sit down and listen to them. And here again, this is part of our approach with uh, any, anything in any new community. When you move into a new neighborhood, you might want to find out how the neighborhood is before you start telling them how you're going to act. And uh, we don't view it any differently than that in terms of the mining business. So we plan to sit down and not meet, you know, typical company as you go and you meet with the uh, elected officials. And that's pretty much it. You might hire somebody to go and, you know, do some some community outreach or something. Uh, we, we much prefer to go and meet with the elders, the actual people in the communities. And obviously you meet with the government, uh, but you, you have to meet with the people because after all, the governments come from the people. And uh, especially in the Aboriginal societies, it's very maternal, uh, elder uh, driven society. And uh, so that's where we'll spend a great deal of our time and effort. And yes, that's some money. It's not uh, conventional money spent in a drilling program, as, as many investors would see, but it's, uh, we think, uh, perhaps... But you think that's the, order of, that's the order of play? So uh, I'm hearing M&A, if you can. That you're, you're, you're kicking yeah. a few tires, if you can. That's the quickest way to get production, get revenue, okay? There's a cost that, and I guess when you know what it's going to cost you, you'll know, okay? And then we will know. 
then the next course of action is get speak to the these uh, well Navajo in, 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 in some I think is it only Navajo you're dealing with or are there other First Nation groups as well I guess there must be multiple it's uh, primarily now in New Mexico it's it's uh, exclusively the Navajo right. in Arizona it's primarily the Navajo right okay okay so that's going to be there but you and I'm going to, we're going to segue off into into environment um uh, election in a second i promise you but you you yeah. with the projects that you have and like i say you've got a couple of handfuls of conventional and isr projects there you are still two three four five years technically from being able to start yep you know mo not monetizing necessarily well maybe monetize in some cases but understand what you've got ec the economics uh, of those projects yeah um so therefore yeah, emanate really that far away in revenue. yeah yeah and absolutely in terms of revenue, because, you know, you need production and, and contracts and all of that kind of good stuff. But I just want to understand, you know, in terms of what you've got today, what, how you value that and the time frame. I think you've been quite candid about that one. But which leads us neatly on to um, the EnviroLH Encore Golden Predator um, JV, Group 11 Technologies. I've heard you talk about this. You're quite excited about this. Um, yeah. You are, yeah. I, I, you know, if it can do what you say, or you know, then it's going to be fantastic. But uh, again, you you've got to go through a process there. You're in a sort of non-exclusive license situation to use Envirolicious technology, and you and uh, sorry, Encore uh, and Golden Predator are going to go through a process of for, of how long to do what. What's the end game? Well, I think the uh, thank you, thank you for asking. I, I do get pretty excited about this. I get excited about uranium, but I get uh, particularly excited about this end of it. Uh, and the mining industry is pretty quick to adapt change. After all, every century or so, they come along and do something new. Um, and it's been about a hundred years since we started using cyanide, so I think we're due. Um, cyanide is not the evil that uh, many people would portray it. It's it's quite controllable and. You, know, you have to be cautious with it, but you have to be cautious with just about everything. That being said, its perception isn't likely to change. And the uh, NGOs are only get stronger. There'll be more and more opposition to it. And I think that trend's pretty clearly established. I don't see any reason for that to change. Uh, you know, perception stronger than fact in this instance and, and in many instances. So, um, you know, it, it, we started getting on, onto this when, when the, during the depths of the uranium market when we didn't see much hope for it several years back, the company, the board started saying, well, let's look for an alternate but aligned industry or business opportunity. And so we look around the room and we see, uh, you know, well, first off, we kicked a lot of tires on that, didn't come up with anything. And just over the course of last year, we started realizing we've got a tremendous amount of in situ uh, expertise here. In fact, uh, you know, Dennis Stover, our CEO, was one of the founders of the in situ, one of the inventors of the in situ process. And so, a lot could be gained just historically talking to him. Before this was actually working, did anyone think it would work? No, everyone thought it was a, a silly idea. Once it started working, who was your biggest opponent? The uranium mining industry, believe it or not. For over a decade, they spent tens of millions of dollars trying to squash the ISL uranium industry. Um, and of course that at first makes you go, well, why would they do that? Well, it's because the, the uranium industry and I think the gold industry, every industry really enjoys status quo. They don't really embrace radical change, especially when it may have to do with the extension of their permits, uh, refurbishing or retrofitting of their plants, et cetera. You can see why it might not be in their best interest. Um, 
certainly some of the major caterpillar manufacturing companies and Komatsu may not like the idea very much either, because if you could go to in-situ mining, you're going to need a lot of big yellow iron running around. Uh, fortunately, the drilling companies might like it, especially with low oil prices, because you need a lot of holes drilled. But uh, we started doing a bit of research, and I was shocked to find out that there are actually ISL mines for gold in the world. And I think most of our viewers would be very surprised. Most geologists are very surprised. But indeed, there are a number of them, uh, not a big number, but there's uh, uh, more than one in Russia. Unfortunately, they use cyanide, and it's uh, in a rural area that's only inhabited by aboriginals, and they have just, uh, I'd say, pretty complete disregard for, for the ill effects of, of what they're doing. But more importantly, it shows that it can be done. Uh, that is, you can move fluids through rocks that are not uh, oh, conventional in terms of a conventional ISL. You have to have a sandstone that's permeable, that's relatively horizontal, that's got an aquitard like a shale below it and beneath it to confine your fluids. Uh, and there have been a lot of breakthroughs done in terms of induced permeability where you can actually uh, fracture rock at a desired level. That is, you can get two-inch rubble, you can get six-inch rubble through controlled and, and computer choreographed blasting. Um, that wasn't available five or 10 years ago. It is now. And uh, so you can establish fluid pathways. It's particularly attractive uh, in the gold area because of the price of gold, first off. Uh, second off, because almost all gold is in placed in, in fracture controlled. And so when you induce permeability, you open those same very fractures to the fluids that will touch the metal and dissolve it. So assuming they're doing it in a couple of places in the world, one place they're using chlorine uh, chlorine solution, which is great, except uh, you know, mustard gas is, is one of the byproducts, which has got some ill effects. There's another group out that's using bromine, which is a known carcinogen. Um, the, the real advantage with the EnviroLeach connection is the uh, chemistry they use is benign. Uh, you can eat it. In fact, it's a human nutrient. Two-thirds of the world has, suffers a deficiency in it. Uh, there's virtually no uh, standards for groundwater uh, con concentration or uh, any of that sort of thing. So it's, it's a, And its kinetics are superior to, to cyanide, at least in the ones where we've run the test. So what keeps it from being a panacea? Well, its price is about 10 times that of cyanide. So there is an issue there. Uh, it's also a very controlled market, whereas cyanide is a very uh, commodity type market. You can go and buy it from a number of suppliers. Uh, the, the basic uh, components of the EnviroLeach solution are controlled by a very uh, small consortium, uh, maybe even a cartel. And um, so we're, we're looking at ways to lessen the expense uh, without uh, competing against that uh, cartel. And uh, that is, we won't get into their market, but develop a source of the uh, chemical for our own internal use that doesn't affect them. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we, there's examples of where this works with toxic chemicals. So if it works, it's a matter of a, a solvent is flowing through the rock, dissolving the metal of choice in this position, in this instance, gold. It's being pumped to the surface, precipitated out or, or collected out through ion exchange of the solution, having the solution reinjected and, and continuing exactly as in the ISL, except it's being done for gold and with two toxic chemicals. So um, it hasn't taken on widespread uh, applicability, but we think all of the pieces are there. I mean, we, there's instances of every aspect of this working. It's a matter of coordinating it together. And to do such a thing, we've brought together a, a really good team. Uh, you know, we've got uh, hydrometallurgists, we've got metallurgists, we've got uh, organic chemists, uh, inorganic chemists, and we've got uh, about 12 
top-notch scientific people on this multidisciplinary approach, including a, you know, a blasting engineer, which is really key to establishing the permeability. And uh, there's, there's a number of other companies that are working on the tail end of this process in terms of the nanobead technology for extraction of the desired metal from the solution. And uh, that's a real key, and we're glad they're working on it because that's the tail end of our process. So, you know, be, be glad to contract that end of it out. Um, but our, our expertise uh, on the Encore side is, is purely the ISL uh, technology. And uh, we have made a lot of internal evolution from a period a year ago going, well, it has to be a flat sandstone with sail on both sides because that's the way it has always been for 50 years. So now it's like, well, you know, there are a lot of other geologic environments where we think this will work also. And so we're, we're just itching at uh, getting out in the field and trying that. And uh, the, the economics of it are, are very compelling. Your permitting time without cyanide is, is very, very low. Um, you don't worry about containment of your fluids like you do in a uranium situation, uh, other than from an economic situation, then that the fluids cost, the solvent costs you money, so you don't want to lose it. But in terms of confining it, you aren't having any nasties get out into the environment. So you aren't uh, concerned other than a, in an economic way. So your permitting is far less. Reclamation is far less. So you can afford a, a cost multiple on, on cyanide. The question is, what is that multiple? You know, is it 10? Probably not. Is it two or three easily? Um, what we're doing now is determining where in that field the, the tipping point is. And it's going to open up a, a lot of projects that uh, I, I Ideally, the, the best places to use this are the places they hate cyanide the most. Uh, Montana comes to mind. Romania comes to mind. Uh, all these big deposits that they've run out to people and basically banned cyanide. Uh, if you can come in with an environmentally uh, acceptable approach to, to remove this, that is essentially non-invasive. You know, I mean, they, the non-invasive surgery revolutionized uh, healthcare and uh, certainly was, uh, you know, a disruptor, if you will. And uh, we see that this is the exact same analogy. You know, you, you can say going out and drilling a hole and putting a pump solution, series of pumps in is, is not uh, non-invasive. Well, non-invasive surgery is not very non-invasive if it's your shoulder that they're operating on, but it, it beats the heck out of the old fashioned way of ripping it open. So it, very, very much of a correlation there, I think. I can tell you're passionate about it. I can tell that you, yeah. you've, I, I mean, I read the terms that you, you, you Encore putting in 750,000 Canadian uh, plus your expertise, I think Golden Predator are managing the process. Uh, Envirolage um, will obviously be uh, one of the joint venture partners. You know, if I'm, if I'm looking at their business, you know, they've got whatever their market cap is, sort of 50, 50 million bucks or something like that. This is a non-exclusive deal that you've got, right? So they are going and doing their thing too, and you're doing it concurrently. Um, is this is how? Can you give us the sort of specifics of the deal? Is this in perpetuity? Is it like an annual revolving license? Is it a ten-year thing? I mean, how, how does it work? Well, we've 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 established a private company that's held by those three shareholders. Um, I have to get to just a, a segue for a moment on the business model. In most mining companies, you go public immediately because you need the cash. In almost every other industry, medical, high tech, you know, any of these things, you try and stay private as long as possible. And when you go public, it's actually your monetization. It's, it's at the back end, not at the front end. And uh, this is really not a mining venture. This is a high tech venture. This is a non-mining metal recovery venture. 
And as such, we want to keep it private as long as possible. Uh, you know, what one percent or probably a hundredth of one percent of the world's capital is really interested in mining, and probably at least two thirds of the world's capital is adamantly against mining. Um, so we think we'll have a very fertile pool of capital to, to reach out to. Um, that's why we've incorporated in Delaware and we're a U.S. company. Um, we aren't going after the mining investors. We're going after the rest of the world. Um, and uh, EnviroLeach, is, it's not a competitive issue with them because their primary function is going after the electronic recycling end of the business, which we have no interest nor expertise in. <clears throat> they have no expertise in ISL. And to us, ISL is um, the key to changing and revolutionizing the mining industry. <clears throat> it's, you know, it works in copper here again with perhaps not the best reagent, sulfuric acid. Uh, but if you can come with a benign reagent that works across a broad spectrum of metals, you really can change it. You can do away with the smokestacks. You can do away with the smelters. You can do away with the tailing stamps, the leach ponds, uh, open pits, and end up with a nice green area. So it's timely from the ESG movement. It's uh, made possible by the advancements in ETI's chemistry um, and the advancements in blasting technology and the apl application of the knowledge that we have of ISL. So it's all of those things pulled together. And um, while we have a non-exclusive license on their chemistry, uh, we do have restrictions upon its applicability to ISL. So you're going to, you're going to say remain private. Are you guys funding it? The, the three of you funding this thing? Well, not equal. It's 40, 40, 20. How, how did that conversation go down in the kitchen with Golden Predator? Do you well, obviously, everyone wants more than they're going to get, don't they? Um, but, you know, in reality, there are, um, you know, two fundamental, you know, the, the, the conversation ranged from equal partners to not being a partner at all for Golden Predator. And, you know, after all, I mean, really, the, and at the end of the day, the logic prevailed. I mean, there are two really critical dynamic parts of this. Uh, one is the in situ leaching aspect, which we at Encore have a great deal of expertise in. Uh, in fact, I think we've, between our guys, they hold seven or eight patents on it. Um, uh, and the other part is the chemistry. Now, the day-to-day -day management of it and the, I guess, the reason Golden Predator has got a seat at the table anyway is because we were the first commercial application of their chemistry. Uh, and this was not in an ISL mode, but in a, a milling mode, uh, utilizing gold recovery from a concentrate. So, and that will be a niche business of the company as well. But the focus on it and the real prize, if you will, is the in situ. Uh, right, which, which, was, which comes back to on, Encore, obviously would like yeah. to utilize that. But how much time have you, I mean, how much more R&D in terms of how much more testing, uh, learning have you got to do? Is this two, three, four years our, our, our objective will be to produce metal in three years. Okay, um, there you and, go. And even that may not, even that may not be commercially, the pilot scale at least. Um, and obviously we'd like to exceed our, our positioning, but when we've drawn up the budget for this, we've, we've looked at uh, taking on three projects, uh, test, test drilling them, uh, doing a lot of circulation tests, a lot of flow tests, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and three different geologic environments that we believe all will work when we go into them but they will be different to give us a broader spectrum of testing. Um, because just because it works doesn't mean it's working. You know, there'll be difference of efficiencies between the different uh, different tests, even if they all work. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, so they, they go from there, but we're, 
And we're planning on funding it. I want to get back to that. You'd ask about that. Mm-hmm. Is is we the initial funding has been taken care of by the arrangement. Uh, additional funding is there's been a founders round uh, that's signed up for, but not closed yet because we're still doing paperwork. The virus slowed down our paperwork considerably. Um, and uh, then there'll be a, a, a small round uh, done uh, amongst more typical investors. And so that'll raise a you know, million and a half bucks, something like that between those two. And then after that, we'll be going to see the uh, major funds and all in the US to, to do the rest of the funding. All private. All, yes, sir. All private. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. And I, I, just to make sure I understood, you're going to test it on three different types of situations. So the brachia and what, what else are you going to test it on? Well, certainly vein-type deposit would be one. Right, okay. Um, so there's... You know, that, that's one of my particular favorites. And in fact, it's it's interesting to note that uh, in the U.S., a, a test was done in the, uh, I want to say, late 70s in Cripple Creek, a big gold district here, uh, by a major mining company that was actually partially successful with very minimal uh, effort, in fact, zero effort to increase uh, permeability. Uh, The thing worked, they had a merger and that was the end of that. Uh, Now it didn't work 100%, but it certainly was encouraging. And uh, little things like that, people have been in the industry for their whole life are unaware of. And I certainly was until we started digging into it. so, so we're very optimistic. As I say, all of, all of the pieces of the puzzle are there. We just need time and money to assemble them and, and take a, a number of tests to determine what works the best. Okay, so we... we to focus our direction. Absolutely. So we, we've spoken to a few companies. And sorry, I'm going to wrap it up, I promise, surely. Um, just, this yeah, is such no a great worries. conversation. Such a great conversation. Um, we've spoken to people with their own proprietary technologies, whether it be around ablation or what whatever their IP is, and they... they they, they say it's great, it's fantastic. However, it's not commercial. Um, it's not commercial yet, I think is the, the phrase they use. And they keep yeah, beating right. that drum. Are you brave enough to pull the plug on this if you see this is not gonna work? Oh, yeah, I don't think we'll have much choice. I think the type of people will have funding us in the US will instruct us to do so. Okay. I mean, these are uh, success-oriented funds, uh, you know, driven by some of the marquee names in the in the world in terms of high tech that have their own uh, oh, ESG funds, if you will. Okay. Um, that, that we, uh, you know, not only do we plan to involve them as shareholders, but also in, in management from a business perspective. So I think the, uh, the financial funds will dry up pretty quickly if this is not making progress in a, in a mean, meaningful way. I think At the they, same time, mm. those funds are also quite, quite acceptable of a three or four year time frame. No, no, I'm sure. I'm sure they are, and I think a lot of people want this to work. It's a fantastic thing if you can deliver it. But at the same yeah. time, the the trail is littered with you know car, car wrecks of companies who have tried and failed to do whatever Indeed. it is that they do. Um, okay, and one last one, final one is: is this distracting you from the uranium uh, task ahead of you? No, it's not actually. Um, I think at this point uh, we've you know we we aren't really looking to operate uranium until we're successful uh, in terms of some sort of an M and A. Even then, at current prices, we wouldn't turn the taps on. Um, I, I think the best way to answer that question is: Is it conceivable over the next twelve to eighteen months, if if all of our objectives are met, that we'll have a crunch on personnel? Yes, Fair I enough. look forward to that. 
there there are a number of people that we've been in contact with that are you know you, you can always uh, staff up and it's not necessarily that easy because you don't want just bodies you want the people that are going to really contribute and move forward and uh, so we, we look forward to having that as a significant issue in 18 months down the road is, is needing to recruit people for both sides of the business. Bill, thank you very much for today. Lovely to meet you. Oh, Lovely you. to hear his story. Uh, um, some, some, uh, you as well, Matthew. Thank you. Very, very, uh, very honest appraisal of the situation. And um, we look forward to getting into some detail with you, maybe over some of the projects in the, in the near future. And let's hope the uranium market does recover, as you say. I think we're through the toughest part of it. I think the next decade will be a lot more fun than the last one. So. <laughs> Let's hope so. Bill, appreciate your time. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. You as well. Cheers. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.